Good morning. Thank you for your your efforts so far for for being here. It's um, it's quite the feat that we managed to pull off a, a session with everything that's what's been going on. Obviously, uh, an unusual time. Um, one of the one of our members, one of Roshi's ordained students, uh, Jinder, I was talking to him recently. He ended up, uh, you know, he's he's back in New York. He's a doctor. He's been on the, the front lines in this, uh, in this crisis. And um, he ended up in, um, in a photo in the, in the New Yorker last week. Uh, the article was about uh, a nurse and a couple of nurses that were documenting what life was like. And he, he kind of popped up in there and we were talking about that and just saying, wow, you know, uh, a year ago, we wouldn't have thought that um, <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be in this situation for, and for any of us. We, we have a, an idea, um, a sketch and um, a plan in order to uh, navigate life. Um, that comes naturally to us. We may... Um, obsess over that and add to that and overdo it. That's sometimes uh, an issue for many of us, but at most it's, uh, it's a sketch. And of course, the, uh, how things are going to turn out is, is always unknown. And um, today I wanted to bring up another uh, a koan. I was, uh, in my attempt to uh, build something on uh, the foundation that Mokowin began with uh, yesterday, with bringing up the case of uh, Zen's historical founder, Bodhidharma, with his audience with Emperor Wu, and to, to go on from, from that koan with um, another um, story and remembrance from, from that era. Because <clears throat> it's, you know, I use the word story there when we reach back to that this um, almost legendary time in China once you get that far back some of the figures become quite um, mythical or some of the happenings we we question did that actually happen you know Mark Wynn brought up Bodhidharma's cutting off his uh, eyelids there's another tale that says so when he threw them down on the ground that's where the first tea bush sprouted in China you know so some of these things are clearly one would think are quite legendary or apocryphal um, as we move forward you know it, it's always struck me as just a wonderful aspect of our tradition that records have been kept so meticulously and the training has been maintained so meticulously for these many generations and centuries and even even millennia as we move out of the distant, more legendary past, uh, but still a very, very long time ago, we find that um, very detailed 
reliable records were were being kept in that era in in China. I read some time ago about the uh, the earthquake fault that's off the coast of uh, not off the coast of the Northwest United States, off Seattle and Oregon in that in that area. And finding a geological record where they they realised there'd been some major tsunami in 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 uh, ballpark twelve hundreds or thirteen hundreds somewhere like that, and of course there were, no, there were no records in the United States of that happening. But some bright spark realised, wait, if that happened uh, then here, the effect would have also have been felt across the water in. Uh, in Japan, so they they went and checked there, and sure enough, there was a, a writing around that time of uh, what they called a, a ghost tsunami because they didn't feel the earthquake there, which came in and caused a lot of damage, and that was able to help corroborate what happened here all those years ago. So we have this uh, wealth of tradition that really reaches back, and I've always been a Personally, uh, an enthusiast for for history, I like to read history and be informed by history. And when we reach back into the legendary era, it, it struck me earlier in, in, in thinking what to raise up today, but it's almost like we're in a, a new, it feels like a new legendary era <laughs> in some ways where um, the love of truth and facts and how things actually are have been somewhat um, moved away from into uh, uh, into a love of um, a reliance on narrative and uh, story and um, perhaps a, a skewed way of things are. That's just my own opinion or <laughs> my own own comment on uh, but that that does seem to be appearing in our in our news and and uh, politics, uh, financial world, all kinds of all kinds of places. And as as practitioners, if we use that word, it's really up to us in navigating and living our life uh, how we where we choose to to put our focus. Um, we can put our focus into story and narrative and live that way, or we can aim our focus toward uh, reality, whatever that is, as much as possible, and rather to uh, lean in toward uh, always realizing truth. And um, that, that's where I intend to continue to, to lean, rather than into uh, story and, and pictures of things, but anyway, to to look back into this um, distant time, which of course is right now, we find here Bodhidharma. Um, you know, Mokwin brought up those answers to questions of Emperor Wu, and and I'm sure we can see that. Uh, the heart of what became the Zen school is really clearly stated there. You know, you, just to somewhat recap briefly, when asked questions about merit, about karma or cause and effect, 
And when asked, who are you? When asked about nature of self, unerringly, Bodhidharma, as the exemplar and lineage holder of the, the Buddha, uh, points directly at emptiness or not knowing and gives uh, no framework or explanation uh, whatsoever to hold on to. And that remains the living uh, practice that we're engaged in. At some point, Master Bodhidharma, it's ascribed to him, but he said he described or defined Zen as a special transmission outside sutras, not dependent on words or phrases, directly pointing to the human mind, seeing into one's nature and attaining Buddhahood. So a special transmission or an intimate, there's another translation, which perhaps is closer, an intimate transmission outside sutras or not reliant on sutras, not dependent on words and phrases. You know, even at this time of Bodhidharma, it said, I think, that he was a Lankavatara Sutra master. You know, so in, in these uh, threads from around that time, we, we, we learned different things about the practice. He wasn't the first uh, monk to come from India to China. That had already that cross-pollination. Uh, you know, people had already been coming for quite some time. And it would already... Uh, sprung up uh, a love of, um, you know, many of the sutras, Lankavatara Sutra, different ones which I could also mispronounce, that, that were common during that day. And there's always that tendency for us as human beings to uh, mistake uh, the moon for the finger pointing at the moon. Meaning, you know, a sutra is brought up where somebody has put an enormous effort uh, the fruit of decades of diligent and meticulous practice in an effort to write, say a few things, which is very difficult to say a few, to say anything good. And, and, and has managed to do that, to point at the reality of this human life, to point at this human condition, to, to steer people away from a reliance on, on, on description, on narrative, on... on, on Story on explanation, on belief system, an opinion, or, or any of those things, and to point directly right at this. And then the, 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 the terrible irony, then, that that then becomes the new method, the new religion, the new story that people can become reliant on. You know, somebody asked Roshi on Zoom, I think, last week, of a, the week before, about the burning of the... The, the blocks for um, making the blue cliff record. You know, it still confuses people to this day. But this is along that similar line where something is held up. It's very good, very good explanation. This really points at it. But then that book, that writing then becomes the Holy Grail that's venerated. And then we, we, we miss the point. So Bodhidharma... <clears throat> it said that when he left um, his audience with Emperor Wu, you know, across the, across the river, this is some metaphor involved here as well, and then headed off to, um, to a cave where it said that he sat, sat facing the wall for nine years. That became his 
practice, Master Dogen in one writing, um, talks about this in, uh, in answer to, to a question, just paraphrasing here about why continue to practice. And he brings up how after, after many decades of diligent practice and succeeding the Buddha with the, at that point, the Buddha's robe and bowl, Bodhidharma still continued. Why, why did he continue to do Zazen? Why was he still engaged in, uh, in a practice? But he did this. He went to what became Shaolin, it said, and then sat facing the wall for nine years, a, um, a type of practice of Zazen, which is still uh, practiced in um, a key practice in the Soto tradition today. It's not, not done here. That was, that was uh, uh, changed at, at some point before I became, before, I, before I was here. But people literally turn and face the wall. Which, again, is, takes away a reliance on method or description in a search for the realization of self. In that practice, you are faced with, quite literally, a wall. What is there to see there? You know, of course, you can project a lot onto a wall... A wall is a suitable background for a uh, projector. You know, you, could, you can watch a movie on a, on a wall. That's similar to what happens here, though. Same thing. Whether you literally turn and face the wall as you can here or turn in where there are other people and a high shiki and an altar, it's still facing the wall. At each time that we uh, sit or are engaged in zazen, whether it's in the action of physical sitting in this way or it's in the midst of uh, movements being involved in another activity it's still facing the wall it's still facing the wall of the impregnable fact of this great mystery of and any word is off when we put something in we say self self nature brought up to look directly at that. So Master Bodhidharma goes and uh, practices or or sits Zazen, lives a simple life one can imagine. And then uh, to pick up the the koan here, um, Bodhidharma, this is Bodhidharma pacifies the mind from case 41 of the Mumon Khan. Bodhidharma faced the wall. The second ancestor stood in the snow, cut off his arm and said, Your disciple's mind has no peace as yet. I beg you, master, please put it to rest. Bodhidharma said, Bring me your mind and I will put it to rest. The second ancestor said, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. Bodhidharma said, I have completely Put it to rest for you. This is so who became uh, Master Master Eka, who had become the the second ancestor in the in the patriarchal lineage of Zen. Said that he was uh, in his forties at this at that time. So quite an 
an advanced stage for China. Although you look back to this record, it seems like everyone's living into their 90s. You know, must have good water and stuff. You know, or a good, good, honest, simple life of simple uh, food and meditation. You know, but he was in his 40s at this point and had already, exo- had already put a lot into this search. And this is not the first time he came knocking on Master Bodhidharma's uh, cave door. You know, he would just have been refused uh, like time after time. You know, so you can imagine what would be involved. He lives up a mountain. You know, you really got to want to go. You get all the way up there and he tells you to get out of here. But not, you know, so to look at even at that process, not easily dissuaded. Not like Bodhidharma says, no. And he's like, wasting my time here, you know, and then takes off and goes, looks for somebody down in the valley. But he's already searched through the valley and has already lived a life of search and is not yet at peace, which is the fundamental driving point for being engaged in any spiritual practice or pursuit. This quest to be satisfied, a quest to be free in this fact of impermanence in this life that is so fleeting. You know, I picked up this book today, this Mumon Khan, and I, I said, oh, look, this is one I got. Dave Scott gave me this when uh, my Dharma brother, his successor, Tenshin Roshi, in, in 2000, in the year 2000, just when I first moved here. For Dave, best wishes. Always called me Dave. David. For the best wishes for year 2000 and beyond. I'm glad our life paths crossed. Good luck with your practice, whatever form it takes. You know, 20 years, just like that. So... So Master Eckers' mind is still not at rest, so he climbs the mountain uh, again and again. You know, I, was, um, I was watching my, my son Dylan is playing a, a video game. It's um, one of the newer Star Wars ones, and he was really near the end of it. He's put a lot of kind of hours, and he's almost like an end game. And I walked in, and I'm like, hey, Dylan, he's like, shh. Like he's like really locked in and, and he's on the last boss, you know, so like super focused on the last boss. And I like to think about this as that, you know, it's like Master Echo, it's like the last boss that you got to face. It's like is Master Bodhidharma. Maybe he's just removed his eyelids, you know, and looking particularly <laughs> fearsome at this point. Doesn't want to be, doesn't want to be bothered. Doesn't want to have to, answer these questions. You know, so Master Ecker comes there though and asks him, you know, it said that he was stood in the snow. And this line has caused some consternation in, in practice. You know, it says he cut off his arm. You know, I was, I was reading a little about this. He said it's an old, it's quite an old tradition in Asia for a practice of self-mutilation to show one's sincerity. You know, um, Robert, 
Aiken Roshi says in this book, there was a nun at the temple in Honolulu who had a finger missing because parents had demanded that she be get married and she wanted to become a nun. They said no, so she cut off the finger to show that she was uh, sincere. And they said, okay. <laughs> and there's, there's, there are accounts of that culturally going back. So some of this is, of course, is cultural. It's an act of sincerity. Could you really literally cut your arm off and be stood in the snow and survive the night? Well, you know, again, we're... we're, we're we can, we can use this for, for its purpose to show what, what is the point that's being raised. You know, it's just refusing to stand down or refusing to, to give up, refusing to, to give up. Remember, you know, uh, Roshi bringing up how Maizumi Roshi would say, my, you know, again, I'm paraphrasing, um, I'm not here to make things easy for you. I'm here to throw concrete blocks in your way. This is the action of uh, a Zen teacher to put blocks in the way. So something of real value can be found in one's own heart, in one's own mind. It's not reliant on the sutras. It's not found in words and phrases. You know, although people may try to do that and to monetize that, in the Zen school, it's not found in that way. It's, for, it's found in each one of our own being. You know, this exploration of self. I have, he, he says to Master Bodhidharma, your disciple, already saying I'm your disciple, whether you like it or not, and my mind has no peace yet, I, I beg you to put it to rest. And he says, bring me your mind and I will put it to rest for you. Bring that to me. In another translation of this koan with uh, Master Korn Yamada, who's in a um, a lineage through another um, line that Maizumi Roshi was uh, transmitted in, Korn Yamada Roshi said, uh, looking for this mind is like exploring, is is like trying to find yourself on an uninhabited island. (laughs) You walk round and round looking for yourself. Uh, you know, perhaps like Robinson Crusoe, there's that moment where you come, you come to the beach and you find some footsteps, but then you realise uh, they're your own. You know, it's like this journey of this exploration of, of self-nature is what unfolds in session and in this, in this container of practice. And in a lifetime's journey in in this form you know we see as we inquire that this the self that is we we grow up with or, or are formed with and is taken and informed as being reliable and distinct and defined is not so you see that it is indistinct that it cannot be grasped cannot really be defined the name doesn't reach it this shifting um sea of of conditions of uh joys fears and traumas and these things that that have occurred all all inform this but what is really at the what is at that bottom that's the question to be answered that's the question to be brought forward what what's really at the bottom 
what what is this self what is this mind what what is this great mystery that's what master Eckhart the question that he brings to Bodhidharma I can't my mind is not at peace and the same the same quality of responses to Emperor Wu bring that to me and I will put it to rest for you bring, bring me my mind I will put it to rest for you And the search then goes on. But undaunted. And that's an important, a very important part. I look back, you know, after getting this book to look at 20 years ago, I look back at the last 20 years, in one way, you know, the practice is difficult. (laughs) Zen is difficult. You know, a Dharma brother of mine said that, you know, Zen is the uh, effort school. <laughs> it's a school of effort or hard effort. I, I would agree with that. Not that life is not challenging and, and demands effort in all other kinds of uh, spheres of activity too. But most things that are really worthwhile, that are, that are worthy of achieving and realizing, require effort. So the blocks that are thrown in our way are not necessarily, are not a negative thing. The barriers are what feel like the barriers to practice that rise up from our engagement in the schedule and the engagement in the forms. All of those things that come forward can, also, can be used, turned around and used as food for practice and food to go deeper. I, um, I heard a, a podcast from... Um, a motivational guy who, who I like. He's, uh, he's like a, an ex-Navy SEAL guy. Uh, his name's Jocko Willink. And uh, he, he was talking about having that, the attitude of not being, not refusing to be stopped. You know, so I just wanted to share this. So this is him. And he's, of course, talking from his experience, you know, and and, and remembering this is from someone who's in the military or who's in the SEALs. Uh, So he says, oh, the mission got cancelled? Good. Let's focus on another one. What, we didn't get the new gear we wanted? Good. We can keep it simple. Didn't get promoted? Good. More time to get better. Didn't get the job you wanted? Good. Gain more experience. You're getting the picture, right? Got injured? Good. We can take a break from training. Got beat? Good. What did we learn? Unexpected problems? Good. Let's figure out solutions. And he says, just skipping ahead, he says, I'm not trying to sound like Mr. Smiley Positive Guy. That person ignores hard truths. The person who thinks a positive attitude will solve problems, it won't. But neither will dwelling on the problems. No, accept reality and focus on solutions. Take setbacks, take problems and turn, turn them into something good. Go forward and if you're part of a team, that attitude will spread throughout. So that's from, from, from Jocko. 
And I appreciate, I heard that, I appreciate that because we can take our practice or our life to turn it around and to put it in that way. Whatever comes forward in session or our, or our life may seem temporarily a negative and we can be dissuaded from the path of inquiry by, okay, well, that didn't work out. Now I have to look for something else. Or it can be taken as, this is what occurred. Good. How do I use that? Didn't pass the koan. Good. Now I'm really going to get in. Now I can really understand it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that's the attitude of, uh, that's the attitude of Zen training. You know, after some time, Master, Master Eka comes back to, to Bodhidharma and says, I have searched for the mind. In another translation, I read, I have searched exhaustively for the mind, but I cannot find it. Now, I have wandered the island looking for somebody but ultimately cannot find them. I have searched exhaustively. But exhaustive search is very important. This is why, you know, in our, typically in our tradition, it's not something you're done with in a week or two weeks or a year or a couple of years or 10 years or, or 20, you know. Rather, it is an exhaustive search or an exhaustive exploration. You know, in, in walking the island with like the eyes open, you become intimate with every part of it. With the beach, with the waves, with the trees, with the mountains. And we can apply that attitude of exploration to the entirety of the experience of session and then beyond session, from waking in the morning, exploring and living what is real. You know, there are stories involved in that, but stories are just stories. But what is real or what is right here? This is the, the place to explore. In sitting, it's directly that. Whatever one's practice is, just be completely, just be intimately engaged with that and work that practice or allow that practice to work you. Let that unfold. We're often, we're always so quick to judge, weigh, and then pick, choose, throw some stuff out, rearrange things, and then try that. But much better to set that aside and kick that can way down the road, and rather just get involved in fully living whatever this present expression is. And look here. When that moves then from, you know, zazen or sitting and it moves to walking, then it is the direct experience and realization and intimacy of walking and allowing that to unfold and exploring that. Allowing the awareness that animates us to be really to be revealed in that. So often our impulse, or, you know, we have this human tendency, shrink it down, make it small. How's that working for me? But this me and this defined sense of I is the very root of suffering. 
That is the one that dies. How could it not suffer? It is aware of its own <laughs> imminent dissolution. You know, so we, we, we are careful about that reliance on this defined sense of me and other. And it's never, never really to do with other. It's always this one. We spend a lot, you know, unless it's just me, we spend a lot of time in that tussle with other. But you've never seen out of another's eyes. It's always this one. You know, said that um, after this encounter or later in his own you know, teaching career or his life, Master Ecker, who had returned to the city, he was in the city, and um, it said that for a time he, he liked to frequent wine shops and butchers' establishments. <laughs> and it said that somebody had, had, had said to him, you know, um, what are you doing doing this kind of thing? You know, he's a Buddhist priest or lineage holder. And it said, the Master Eka said, I have rectified my mind. What concern of it is, of it is yours? I have rectified my mind. That was for him. And for each one of us, it's for us to do that work. For Master Bodhidharma, is just master, is master Bodhidharma and lives his life out as Master Bodhidharma. For Master Ecker, it's that way. For each one of us, you know, in one way, all of these people are dead and gone. Isn't that incredible? We look back a couple of thousand years ago, people live, where, where are they now? On the realm of form, it's just such a fleeting appearance. But one day we seem to fly in the window and, and the world's here for some time. And then at some point in the unknown, you fly out the other side and that's that. <laughs> what does that mean? No one knows. And for those engaged in the practice of, of, of Zen... You don't drink the Kool-Aid of a belief system. You know, I like that line in the Jukai where it says, uh, uh, you, you promise to no longer um, follow people of dualistic understanding. <laughs> so along those lines. You know, the belief system of a method, you know, the description, you know, like, oh, maybe, but uh, not sure I can really buy into that. Then what we left with a great challenge to like really to live this now, the only place, the only truth that we're, we're sure of, this. Like, how can that not help but raise the, the preciousness and the value of this life? You know, what a shame if we spend some of it, you know, how, how much time we spend in blame and recrimination, You know, but the good news is, is always the, the place of renewal, the place to reboot, the place of practice realization is always wide open, is always this. So however, you know, often in the exploration of this practice, we run down into blind alleys or get lost in valleys or, or, or however we may go. That's fine. This is all the journey of the island. Just keep relentlessly awaring and exploring until this nature 
is, is realized. Because when, um, so the, when Master Ecker is, uh, comes back to Master Bodhidharma, he says, I have searched exhaustively. Again, this exhaustive search. I really looked. I didn't look for a weekend. I didn't look for a week. I didn't look for a few. I, I've, I've really looked inside and out. There, I've put it to rest for you. And we can really look at that line. How can that line be taken? What was the function of, what did Master Bodhidharma do? You know, on the surface, it could be taken almost like an arrogant statement. There you go. <laughs> I put it to rest for you. In one sense, he even said he could with his steep, uncompromising uh, teaching. It helped to precipitate this for Master Eka. Or you can also look at it as I have put it to rest for you, the, the pivotal figure of Master Bodhidharma here. When he says this, I have put it to rest for you, speaks with the same I as the Buddha. I, all beings, the great earth. Almost as the standard bearer of the emissary for the whole thing for the whole of the world, for the whole experience. I have put it to rest for you. And Master Eka is able to gain independence or realize his own innate independence. And this, he becomes the, the second ancestor and the lineage, the lineage continues. In one sense, nothing special. Master you know, Eka realized Eka. You know, so we don't need to be careful with our veneration or raising up of, of uh, people, of figures, of examples, not to uh, put them up on a pedestal and put ourselves somewhere fixed that's below that. That would be to do them a disservice. But for all of these great uh, archetypes and examples of the past, they offer uh, an open hand and an invitation. For those that wish to really look into this matter, this mystery, this self, to become non-reliant on words, explanations, rather to realize and live their own independence, live their role, be who they are through and through. So that there's no, nothing left over and you live, uh, you really live your life, a full life. So, you know, I, I encourage us all to um, take barriers uh, as opportunities. Use everything as food for practice realization. You know, continue the, the exploration ever deeper.
in so doing, we live our lives more intimately. And in doing that, we're able to live with real purpose and be of some use and service. Because that's what we find as we ever, as we wake up to say that, you know, but the, the world is here and our uh, attention is needed. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll finish.